Hello and welcome to RCSI My Health. This podcast explores a wide range of areas in health and well-being and brings together some of the leading healthcare experts in these fields. Our goal is to empower you with the right knowledge so that you can make informed decisions about your health and well-being. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello and welcome to RCSI, University of Medicine and Health Science. I'm Louise Keating, physiotherapist and lecturer in the School of Physiotherapy and co-chair of RCSI Women's Network. Today we are going to discuss menopause part two from coping to thriving. This panel discussion forms part of RCSI's My Health series. The series explores a wide range of areas of health and well-being and brings together some of the leading healthcare experts in these fields with the goal of empowering people with the knowledge to make informed decisions about their own health and well-being. Today I am joined by Dr. Sumi Dunn, GP and lecturer, Department of General Practice, or CSI, and Dr. Lisa Mellon, psychotherapist and lecturer, Department of Health Psychology, School of Population Health, or CSI. Welcome to the RCSI My Health series. In February 2022, RCSI aired a My Health episode on menopause uh, called Living Well Through Perimenopause and Menopause. That's still available to view on YouTube or listen to on podcast platforms. But we received so many hundreds of questions from the audience that that has led to a return to the subject in tonight's part two panel discussion. Menopause from coping to thriving. In this episode, part two, the panel will return to this topic a year later, will update us on what's new from the evidence and clinical practice uh, and return to the audience questions that we didn't get to cover last time. So I feel very lucky. My perimenopausal experience was really uh, impacted positively by friends going through perimenopause before I did. They shared with me what their symptoms had been, what their initial experiences had been in, in going to their GP. And I was really surprised by how little I knew about perimenopause, not least because I didn't realise when I was in it. Without hearing from friends who started to talk about their symptoms, uh, I'm not sure I would have gone to the GP quite so quickly. I was also really fortunate because I went to the GP with a mix of symptoms, anxiety and hot flashes. And I was lucky because the two symptoms, those were my primary symptoms, they came together for weeks at a time and then left together for weeks at a time. So was it not for that coalescing of those symptom timeframes, I'm not sure I wouldn't have thought I was developing anxiety. So by the time I went to my GP to have a conversation, uh, I knew we were likely going to talk about HRT, and we did. And I'm again one of the lucky women who responds really well to HRT. So in the last panel discussion, the panel discussed in detail a lot of aspects of HRT. Sumi, can we start tonight by revising how long someone can or should stay on HRT? And beyond symptom control, how are longer term benefits versus risks now understood a year later? Absolutely. Thank you, Louise. Uh, what we are aware of, uh, and if anything, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence has recently published guidelines to say that if the benefits of HRT outweigh any clinical risk, there isn't a stop date. 
uh, which I think should be very reassuring to hear. Previously, we had alluded back that the maximal benefit would be over a 10-year period to try and catch a woman within 10 years of her last menstrual period uh, to optimise benefits. But we are more and more aware that the extension and continuation of HRT, if there are no further clinical risks, actually adds to the benefit and quality of a woman's life as she goes through the decades. Again, it does come back to cardiovascular risks, clinical risks, and staying in touch with your GP to see if anything has changed to alter the course of any co-prescribing that might happen. So let's turn our attention to the older woman uh, in postmenopause who may well be still experiencing some symptoms or perhaps never went on HRT. We received several audience questions really around the older woman's experience. So let's run through some of those. Would you advise starting or are you against starting HRT for someone who's never been on HRT but has sweats, poor sleep, etc., and is over 60? So again, it depends on when their journey begins. Uh, certainly, again, if we haven't caught someone within the first 10 years, it's very important that a full evaluation around cardiovascular risks is evaluated. And that can be done very simply in general practice to encapsulate blood pressure, to encapsulate cholesterol, to encapsulate any other cardiovascular risk factors, plus or minus smoking, a family history, thromboembolic risk. And that really does contribute to the foremost of a discussion. Combined with any active treatments that somebody might be having, particularly in the oestrogen receptive type carcinomas, be it if someone is actively being treated for breast carcinoma or endometrial carcinoma. Uh, interestingly, cervical cancer doesn't fall into this pattern. So someone with cervical cancer can successfully undertake and take HRT. So again, it is really important that someone comes to the GP because if the symptoms are ongoing, we are aware that the perimenopause journey can extend for at least eight to 12 years. And they may very well still gain benefits of taking HRT in terms of symptom control. But more importantly, the additive effect around bone density and bone health. So focusing again on those older women uh, and the longer term benefits of HRT, we had a question from a woman whose mum was 80. She had had a hysterectomy in her 50s and at that stage had been on HRT for five years. But she was still getting symptoms like bladder leakage, frequent UTIs, osteoarthritis. Could she benefit from taking transdermal oestrogen? As we move through the decades, and again, when we're evaluating somebody's risk profile, certainly as we come into our latter 70s and early 80s, we do see a lot of presentation of women coming into general practice with frequent UTIs or cystitis type symptomology. And what we are aware of is that the depletion of oestrogen will lead to a vaginal atrophy will lead to the thinning of the vaginal tissues and lead to a easier acquiring of a urinary tract infection or a bladder infection as women may interpret it. What we do know is of extreme benefit is local vaginal oestrogen. And that can be taken at any age, at any decade and can be lifelong. Because once vaginal dryness starts to appear or vaginal atrophy and women have symptoms, that is something that needs a constant top up of local vaginal oestrogen. So transdermal oestrogen is great, but it's not smart. 
in that it won't go and target the vaginal tissues, which is much more effective. And what is much more beneficial to the much older woman is local vaginal estrogen. Uh, and there are only a few indications in which women don't take vaginal estrogen and we wouldn't recommend them. And those are women that are currently taking aromatase inhibitors through the treatment of breast cancer. So in thinking about the journey that somebody is going through in that menopause transition, uh, it links back to one other question we have around the age at which you start HRT, which is 53. Is 53 simply too old to start HRT? What we do know, it's a spectrum. So we do have younger women who may have premature ovarian insufficiency at age less than 45 who will benefit from taking HRT. We also have women that have undergone a surgical menopause at less than 50 or less than 40 that will certainly benefit from HRT. So there's certainly a spectrum. So we don't ever define it by a number or an age. And I think that's really important for our women here listening. If there are symptoms, symptoms that are fitting in, that are causing you concern, then start that conversation with your GP. Uh, something else that I allude a lot of my female patients to is a score, an evidence-based score that's easily accessible on the internet, known as the GREEN score, G-R-E-E-N-E -E -E score, uh, very easily to download. And if anything, most of the questions and the bulk of the beginning of the history taking is actually on that score. So Testagel is a hot topic these days. Very much so. <laughs> we received a very specific question about that, uh, and specifically from somebody who was on it to improve both their energy and libido. After three months, if it's not proving effective, should they increase their dose or change to something else, or are there other things available? With Testagel, it's very specific that you stick to the dose prescribed. An extra dose is not going to give any benefit. If anything, then the more debilitating side effects can come on board, which we counsel women to, which can include a deepening voice, clitoromegaly, uh, male pattern baldness, uh, and development of other facial hair. Uh, and that's certainly something that nobody would like or would want. And we know that's associated with too much testogel use. So the absolute prescribed dose, that P dose that we say, or division of the sachet over a 10-day use is absolutely pivotal. Nothing to be gained by extra dosing. We also know that some women will get no benefit whatsoever from test gel. And certainly at month three, if not by month six, if you're getting no benefit, then there is no point continuing to take it. Uh, what we do advocate for, uh, and certainly again in the patient subgroups, is that prior to starting test gel, we will measure your total free testosterone in general practice and then re-measure it at about six to eight weeks to make sure that you're within therapeutic levels and that the dose isn't too high. And that last um, questioner referred to energy levels and also libido. Mm. Um, and although that was discussed in the last panel, uh, it's worth revisiting how women can alleviate vaginal dryness and painful intercourse, specifically as this questioner asks, without risk uh, of cancer causing side effects in their words. So what we do know, and I think I iterated it earlier, vaginal oestrogen is very safe uh, and we're very happy to use it in the majority of our women, except for those that are taking aromatase inhibitors for treatment of specific breast carcinomas. Other than that, vaginal oestrogen really is the way forward uh, to take with a loading dose and then a twice weekly or three times a week dose, depending on symptom alleviation. 
Together with that, we do know in terms of sexual lubrication and to decrease painful sex, we would advocate for lubricants, oil-based or water-based lubricants, just taking caution that the oil-based lubricants will cause uh, condom damage. But other than that, lubricants also are a mainstay in preventing vaginal friction through intercourse. So moving on from HRT, for those women who cannot or choose not to take HRT or indeed just can't tolerate it or can't be prescribed it, have there been any advances in alternative care options? I think uh, the term probably as opposed to alternative is what can we do? Because there will be a body of women for whom they either choose not to take HRT or they are not suitable for HRT or there's a contraindication for HRT. And I think that's really important for our listeners uh, and our viewers to take that on board because the mainstay together with HRT is always going to be lifestyle. There's always going to be the benefits of resistance training and exercise which undertakes gravity, be it walking or running on a regular basis to improve bone density. So that is one aspect. Anything that is going to reduce your cardiovascular risk factors is also going to be an additive benefit. Stopping smoking, for example, or looking at lowering cholesterol through dietary measures. Uh, that too will be an additive benefit. Looking at for example, a DASH diet or the Mediterranean diet for lowering, lowering your dietary sodium around management of hypertension. So all of those can be done without use of HRT to give some alleviation of symptoms. We've also got women who medically for whom HRT is contraindicated and we can manage hot flushes without use of HRT. Again, in discussion with their primary care physician or if needs be secondary care providers. And there are very useful uh, options available, which I think women need to be aware of. Some of them include the uh, specific antidepressant type medication. Uh, and then moving further, if there are no alleviation of symptoms, there is another layer of co-prescribing that we can look at, non-hormone based, for women for whom HRT is not suitable. Lisa, let's turn our attention to work. There's almost 700 million women in the world, aged between 45 and 59, going through this menopause transition. Uh, and almost 50% of them are at work doing that transition, making that transition. So we're starting to see some real attention around employers, focus on what they can do to support women in terms of developing HR policies. And we're seeing some position statements coming out from uh, groups like the European Menopause and Andropause Society guiding employers around what to consider in their menopause HR policies. Can we talk about what women can do within their workplaces to make the workplace experience as they also transition through menopause a little easier? You know, the menopause happens when women are mid-career and it can be very difficult to manage those physical symptoms, but also symptoms like lack of concentration, irritability, memory problems when you're at work and how do you manage that? And I think what's really important for people to really consider is what can they have in their self-care toolbox to help them on a day-to-day -day basis when they're at work. And I suppose there's three areas to consider. The first is how do you manage 
the physical symptoms that you're experiencing at work. So to, I suppose, note what is happening for you and how can you put in place strategies. So if we think of something as simple as ventilation, if you're experiencing hot flushes, can you control the thermostat in your office or your work environment? Can you move closer to a window? Can you move to a cooler office? Uh, those kind of things to make your immediate environment more comfortable. In terms of managing symptoms as well, can you have an SOS kit under your desk or in your drawer with things like a change of clothes, a change of underwear, wipes, deodorant, a face cloth, all of those things that will help you to manage. Simple strategies like looking at your clothing. Can you wear layers so that if you're experiencing a hot flush, you can take off layers and put them back on as you need. These are very useful strategies that you can have to help you through the day-to-day -day difficulties that you might experience. Women often report you know, having problems coping with anxiety that they might experience co-occurring with a hot flush or in isolation. And I think it's really important to build up that psychological toolbox in terms of what works for you in times of stress. And there's very simple grounding exercises that you can do. So a simple grounding exercise, for example, is literally putting both feet on the floor when you're feeling anxiety rising in your chest and just feet on the floor, noticing where you are, listening to the sounds you can hear, what can you smell, trying to remember where you are and that kind of thing really helps to calm your nervous system in that moment of immediate panic or overwhelm. And, you know, when we're in very uncontrollable environments, the one thing we can control is our breathing. Uh, so doing very simple breathing exercises can be very, very useful as well. So a simple exercise is what we call box breathing. So this is where you breathe in to a count of four, you hold it for a count of four, you release for a count of four, and then you hold it out for a count of four, and then you repeat that cycle three or four times. So that takes 30 seconds or, or not very long. Um, and it just helps you to soothe that nervous system as well and let that wave of anxiety pass because a wave of anxiety will pass. It's how you get through that peak is what it's important. And what else can you grab in your work environment? Can you go outside and get some fresh air? Always have water close at hand because if you're experiencing a hot flush or night sweats, you might be dehydrated. Um, and then I think the third part in work is um, communication. You know, you may work in an environment that has a supportive policy with a menopause champion or a very um, empathic line manager and so on. But what if you don't or do you have somebody with you or near at hand that you can call on in those moments of I'm not coping or I'm not feeling good right now. So find your person, uh, be that somebody you can grab for five minutes for a chat or a rant or if you don't have that person in work, do you have somebody outside of work? So your, your phone a friend. So be that your partner, your husband, your friend, your sister, somebody that you can have on speed dial to pick up and say, listen, distract me for five minutes. I, I'm not coping right now. I think, like I said, having your self-care toolbox to know what helps you at times of stress uh, and how you can navigate the workplace. Because, you know, we, we, we have to work, we want to work, and we want to work well. Uh, so how can you integrate these symptoms and cope with them and continue to work? So Lisa, you mentioned the really important fact that often at this kind of mid-career stage that women are experiencing this transition, it adds an extra layer of stress perhaps during that time. And of course, taking 
the situation back outside of the workplace again. Often this is referred to as the squeezed middle generation who might also have intergenerational caring responsibilities. So their experience will have, could have an impact on lots of spheres. Can we talk and hear a little bit more about how to navigate the emotional impact in how it affects all aspects of our lives? Absolutely, and I think that life period is, is a very stressful time. You're spinning a lot of plates in the air, be it family, career, financial um, responsibilities and so on. And there's a lot of um, focus on the physical treatments uh, or to manage physical symptoms, as Sumi has, has discussed. But the emotional piece or the emotional toll tends to get ignored or isn't spoken about as much. And I still think that stigma exists about saying, I'm not coping with this. You know, my peer group are coping. Why am I not coping? So I'm just not going to tell anybody that I'm not coping. But actually lifting the lid on that is so, so important. You know, talking is therapy and, and being able to do that is, is, is really going to help to navigate this very difficult, turbulent period of time in your life. And I suppose there's two forms of support that you need to enlist to, you know, get your strength around you. The first is, I suppose, personal supports that you have in your environment, so your family and friends. And I think what's key there is communicating your needs. So if we start with your partner or close family, or partner, husband, uh, what do you need and what can they give you or what can they, I suppose, not give you in terms of giving you space what is it that you need and i think being able to ask for that and to to clearly communicate this is what i'm experiencing uh, this is what is happening for me and this is what would help me to navigate this easier um, and i suppose if we talk about your closest family members, sometimes some family members are just emotionally unavailable or they're not able to provide that support. So who do you look to outside of your close relationship or your close family? And that's where you can lean into your peer support system. So your friends of a similar age, they're going to be going through a similar experience to you. And I think a problem shared is a problem half. The minute one person talks about something that's slightly taboo, everybody else will be so delighted that somebody has, has opened the lid on this um, that it can be really, really supportive to share. So I suppose my point is to really reach out to the people around you. But if you feel that you can't do that for whatever reason, or you feel that your, your environment doesn't have that uh, peer support you need, it's so important to reach out to professional support. There are so many supports available. And I hear a lot of women saying, oh, I was told to go and um, do CBT, or I was told to go and speak to someone. And I fully agree, but I think it's important to understand the difference between CBT and general counseling and psychotherapy, because they are quite different. So CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is a type of therapy that looks at negative thoughts. So how our negative thoughts impact our beliefs and then in turn impact on our behaviours. So a CBT therapist will help you to challenge that negative self-talk um, and, and have practical strategies to help you manage those um, negative thoughts that come into your mind and how you can, I suppose, develop more positive attitudes and positive beliefs, which then in turn links to, I suppose, more positive behaviours and improved overall quality of life. It, CBT can be quite short term and it works for some people. It works very well for anxiety and for low mood. 
but it's it's not for everyone. I think some women just need a space to talk. They might not have somebody in their lives that they can open up to. So that's what a counsellor or psychotherapist is there for. They provide a very supportive, safe space, confidential space for you to be able to just lay out whatever you need to, be that to vent, to um, cry, to, to whatever you need. You know, a lot of strong feelings uh, are associated with the menopause. We talk about uh, anger, fear, sadness, and these are very difficult, big feelings to sit with. So that's where therapy or counselling can be so, so useful to people because it's a time of reflection. This is a, a very big transitional point in a woman's life and it's a time to, people tend to stop and reflect on past relationships or past events in their lives or, or things that maybe they, you know, may not have dealt with to this point. So again, that psychotherapeutic space gives you that chance to explore all of these feelings that might be very difficult to manage uh, in your day-to-day -day life. So often anger is a feeling that we're not good at sitting with and anger can often be masking other feelings. So for example, it's easier to feel angry sometimes than to feel sad. Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this transition? I'm finding this really sad and I'm sad that my, I'm moving into an older stage in my life. So it's easier to be angry about that than to be sad. Often anger can mask fear as well. I'm afraid of what's happening to my body. I don't know what's happening. I don't know where this is going to go. So having that support of a therapist to help you be with those emotions and get comfortable with that and look at how you can uh, overcome those and have strategies to actually integrate those feelings and, and just have a more balanced experience while you're going through this transition. So on the seeking professional help, I think it's important to point out, people often say to me, well, I can't see a therapist, I can't afford it. Uh, there's lots of low cost counselling services in, in everybody's local area. So I'd, I'd encourage you to seek it out. It's not something that has to be very expensive and it, has, it is quite available in the community. So please, please do seek out that support because, you know, we often don't have people we can talk to and it's so important that you have a space that you can. Let's change our focus for a moment and let's focus on partners, men and women who are partners to women going through this menopausal transition and other family members and friends. What advice would you have for them? I think the first thing and the most important thing is to listen, you know, listen to the woman's experience, to what she is going through, what is happening to her. You may not understand, but this is still her experience and it's important to validate that and to listen and to ask what you can do. You may feel that there's nothing you can do, uh, but there always will be something. Uh, so it's really, really important to, to ask what you can do and also try as best you can to deliver on that. I think the second thing is to educate yourself. You know, a lot of men don't know the first thing about menopause. They don't have a clue. So it's really important to um, educate yourself. And we have some resources um, in accompaniment with this uh, series that you can direct your partner to in terms of some general outlines uh, for what menopause is, what are general, general symptoms, and what a woman might be experiencing. And then the third point is coming back to what we talked about, the workplace. Um, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation had a really interesting position statement in 2019. And almost half of women reported that the menopause was seen as a joke in their workplace. Um, and that about a third of women 
um, reported that the menopause was a negative experience in their workplace. So my advice would be to not be that man in the workplace. You know, ha educate yourself and have that awareness and respect uh, towards your female colleagues that this is um, something that should be uh, respected and accommodated in the workplace environment. Um, can we talk about access to healthcare now, uh, Sumi? Because even within the last year, since part one and part two of these panel discussions, um, there has been an increase in uh, specialist services available in the public and private sector. In the last panel, the discussion was had around maybe when to seek GP care. Mm -hmm. Can we broaden that discussion now and talk about the range of services available and when to access and how to know when to access these services? Absolutely. I think the important uh, thing to bear in mind is that the vast majority, over 80% of prescribing happens in general practice. Uh, and that, you know, we would very much like our patients to come through the door and talk to us in general practice. There are some very rare instances where clinically it may not be an indication to prescribe HRT in general practice. And that's when we as general practitioners will look to our expert colleagues, certainly in the complex care clinics that you mentioned, that being in the Rotunda and Hollis Street to begin with. And then as I believe, the Coombe is about to start its services. And we also have services in Nina, UHG and Cork. Uh, and those services are dependent on a GP referral. So those specialist complex clinics can't be accessed by the public in the first instance. It really is coming through general practice. Uh, and it may be that we in general practice uh, are able to help you, that the needs may be perceived to be complex, but in fact, it can be piecemeal down to say, can we look after you within the general practice remit? There are private menopause clinics, uh, they are around, uh, and again, everybody is entitled to have a look to see if it suits their, their particular care needs. Uh, and again, the majority are run by dedicated healthcare professionals and also dedicated GPs with a specialist interest in menopause care. Uh, but really coming back to the mainstay, the majority and over 80% of prescribing of HRT is undertaken within general practice. And staying with the theme of equity, for women without a medical card who maybe don't have particularly complex health needs, or even women who have barriers to accessing GP care, not from a cost perspective, but maybe from a geographical perspective, um, what other low-cost steps can people take to get support at the right time? And it, it's heartbreaking to see. I mean, we recently had an example of a patient of mine who cannot afford to buy HRT, uh, mapped against other needs through the month, mapped against that even through the drug payment scheme. The uh, cost of HRT is just one step too many, uh, and they are not uh, in a bandwidth to be eligible to get medication uh, through a medical card. Uh, and that's heartbreaking to hear when their own healthcare needs are not being prioritised uh, because it is a belief that other medication is also equally, if not more, vitally important. Uh, what we can do in general practice is look at how we can prescribe the lowest cost option available, the lowest delivery system available and alternatives to a one type delivery mode. So what we will always say is that 
if a patch doesn't suit, let's try a gel. If a gel doesn't suit, let's try a spray. And we can move through that remit to see which one is affordable and which one provides symptom relief. We also have a dual prescribing aspect in that if women need co-prescribed progesterone, and that can add to the cost of HRT on a monthly basis. So can we reduce costs to look at an IUCD, a Mirena coil insertion, where it is a once-off payment, and then thereafter it is in longevity for five years for endometrial protection. And that might then help reduce costs longer term, even though there's an initial outlay. Uh, so again, it's to have that open, fluid conversation in general practice and to be upfront to say, this is actually expensive. I can't afford this. Together with that, there are different modalities of how to prescribe vaginal oestrogen. Some are more expensive than others. And what suits you? Uh, which one can you afford? And not to be embarrassed around any of that conversation because we will listen and we will do what we can in general practice. Lisa, we received a question focusing our attention on beyond the menopause after this transition uh, and whether or not there's a happy end to this particular story. I'm not sure it's useful to look at it as a beginning and end in a way because that gives the, the I suppose, the idea that it's a negative thing, a wholly negative thing, whereas really it's how you can integrate the challenges that a menopause brings into your day-to-day -day life and move forward in life. And I think it's really interesting, that thing about is there a happy ending, uh, looking at the cultural differences around menopause. You know, in Western societies, how we view aging is very much tied into how or why women might struggle with, with managing the menopause because aging is seen as this negative concept where uh, you know society constructs aging as something related to um, more frailty, you're closer to death, you're contributing less to society, all of these negative stereotypes around aging. Um, whereas if you look more to Eastern cultures, uh, the menopause is actually seen as a really positive experience in a woman's life. It's seen as you're transitioning into greater wisdom. You're seen as a more valued member of community because you have more wisdom and more life experience. And is in those cultures, women report less symptoms of menopause and less uh, distressing experiences. So I think it's a message to take in that this is a transition that you're moving forward to a, a higher level in terms of life experience, uh, resiliency and so on. So it's more not a happy ending. It's moving forward to a, a different phase or a different chapter in a positive manner. And I think... Um, People often talk about, you know, what are the advantages of this period and what good things can I take from this? And I think it's important to, to recognise that things aren't ending. Yes, your childbearing uh, period is ending in your life, but things like, you know, enjoying sex is not ending. Uh, having new romantic relationships or new relationships in general is not ending. Uh, having fulfilling mothering roles and caregiving roles are not ending. Uh, you know, having fulfilling roles in society is not ending. There's no, nothing is really ending in that capacity. And in psychotherapy, we often see women who present, um, really come out of it with a more 
I suppose, a more authentic sense of self, a stronger sense of self. And they're able to, I suppose, have a clear focus on what's important to them, what their values are, uh, and what goals they have for this next chapter or, or looking forward to the next part of their life. So I think that meaning-making thing can be really important because when you go through a lot of physical and, you know, psychological stress you learn to, to i suppose identify what your priorities are what are the things i can drop what are the things do i not care about or i don't need to care about so i think you come back to that word authenticity i think it's an opportunity to figure out a little bit more who you are i don't think we ever figure out fully who we are but it's a chance to actually reflect and think okay what do i want out of life in the next 10 20 30 years so rather than happy ending it's more a happier beginning or a happy next step, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So we will get through it and we'll be stronger for it, is what I'm hearing you say, uh, which is really good news. Um, let's come back to another area discussed in part one, which is around cognitive function. So often referred to as kind of brain fog, certainly memory issues. And we received a question specifically about poor memory during the perimenopause and whether or not it will improve postmenopause. Memory problems are, I suppose, funny in a way in that the more you're aware of them, the more you hone in on them and become stressed about them. And then it's a vicious cycle in that that self-perpetuates. Uh, and it can be very, very distressing. But a lot of research would, would point to four particular strategies for improving memory and brain health in general. And it comes back to what Sumi mentioned earlier around physical activity and what was talked about in the previous episode. Physical activity is central to managing your brain health and improving or preventing memory loss. So keeping uh, those physical activity guidelines um, in mind is really, really cru crucial at this period of your life. Uh, another really important strategy for, for brain health and improving memory is social interaction. So you're exercising your brain. So when we engage socially, we're in novel situations, we're taking into perspective other people's viewpoints and so on, our brain is working and that's really, really important. And, you know, if social activity isn't possible or, or not always possible, simple things to keep your brain active like crosswords, Sudoku, reading, playing an instrument, something that has your brain working. This is really, really important to manage memory. And then the other two key pillars are, number one is sleep. Sleep is your baseline for everything. When you're asleep, your brain is regenerating, it's repairing itself. And insomnia and sleep difficulties can be a symptom of menopause. So it's really, really important to, to really focus down on your sleep hygiene and what you need to do to get good quality sleep. And then lastly, in terms of brain health, and again, Sumi's mentioned a Mediterranean diet, Diet is essential, particularly around um, omega-3 fatty acids uh, are so good for brain health. So all of these four pillars, so physical activity, sleep, brain activity and diet are, are what you need to manage uh, any memory symptoms or memory impairments that may happen. So I suppose on a more day-to-day 
aspect what can you do with memory difficulties and I think we live in such a digital era now to embrace that things like having digital reminders on your phone or in your calendar for things you feel you're going to forget keeping a, a rolling to-do list uh, enlisting people to remind you of things if you're having memory losses what strategies can you use day to day that will help you to manage what you need to do and I think it's really important to to know when it's more than just memory loss. So if these memory impairments are becoming very severe, I think it's very important that you would talk to your GP to rule out um, another cause rather than, than menopause alone. So we've almost come to the end of our discussion. Um, what are your key take-home messages for our audience this evening? I would say start the discussion. Come into us in general practice. If you haven't already, do access the green score that I spoke about uh, and see if how many of the symptoms are applicable or not applicable to you. Uh, also, just if you have strong views that you don't wish to take HRT or have concerns around that, let's start that discussion. Uh, let's keep in mind, as Lisa has just said, lifestyle and the importance of lifestyle through this transition journey. Uh, and with anything, we're here to listen in general practice. And if we can help, we will. And Lisa? Um, my one thing would be to give yourself a break. <laughs> you know, this can be really difficult and really challenging and you don't have to do it alone. You know, enlist your army, you know, enlist support in your immediate social circle, but also to use professional support if you need that. This is a really difficult life transition and not to compare yourself to others, you know. Um, if you ask them, they're probably not coping either. And everybody has a very different experience. So, you know, give yourself a break and, and remember that this is a normal transition uh, and that you, you have it in your power. Thank you both. That concludes our discussion today. My thanks to Dr. Sumi Dunn and Dr. Lisa Mellon. So a reminder that part one of our discussion around the menopause is still available for you to view and goes into more detail around physical activity advice and exercise advice uh, from the physiotherapist on the panel that evening. But it was really a companion piece to tonight's discussion. We hope it adds value and empowers uh, the women watching uh, as you progress through your menopause journey, whether it's in front of you, you're in it or it's behind you. Uh, and we really hope that tonight's discussion has added further value uh, to that. Further details about upcoming events in the RCSI My Health series are available on the RCSI website uh, and you can also find them across all major podcast platforms. From all of us here at RCSI University of Medicine and Health Sciences, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to RCSI My Health. We hope you found this episode useful and informative. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date on health-related topics directly from the experts. For more information on RCSI My Health series, please visit rcsi.com forward slash myhealthlectures.